Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, all things Dominic Dunn, where nothing is linear and everything is connected. Thank you for joining me today for this episode of Done and Done is we are exploring a little bit of incidents and accidents, maybe coincidences to this summer within our series of Lost and Found. The downfall and the rise up, so to speak, of our man Nick working into his third act that we know him best for. But what happened along the way? What are the things that happened earlier in his life that Nick uses for that third act of his? Where does it all connect? We are going to journey to many places this summer in our investigation, mainly looking at all of those incidents, accidents, and connections from Dunn's life from 1964 to 1984. Today, we're going back to a party, a big party, a huge party, all the way back in 1964 with the original black and white ball hosted by Dominic Dunn and his wife Lenny in April of that auspicious year on the occasion of the Dunns' 10th wedding anniversary. Which, to be fair, this ball is the beginning to the end of their marriage, but also a great story to dine out on in his later life. The Dunn's black and white ball was a big deal, although it was very much enclosed in the Hollywood circle that Dominic wanted to be a part of, he did make sure that he got some press from this big event. Nick and Lenny's black and white ball in 1964 was also the inspiration for Truman Capote's black and white ball that comes about two and a half years later in November 1966. And, unbelievably enough, Frank Sinatra will intersect these two stories along with some real indications of how Dominic Dunn's first time in Hollywood is going to go. Before we begin today's journey, I do have a spyglass here to give some tremendous thanks to a few folks out there. Holy cats and how grateful am I to our latest Patreon supporters. Your generosity and support is simply incredible. Huge, huge thanks. To Jelena S., Amy R., Carrie A., Lori and Kathy B., y'all all rock. Nicole 50, thank you for the awesome review on Apple Podcasts as well. Thanks again to all y'all for joining me today for this tale of connections and coincidences as they interweave through the high point, really, of Dominic Dunn's first round in Hollywood. Don your party threads, friends. It is time to go to the ball. Let's investigate. If we're making a little bit of a sandwich into our investigation today, Let's go ahead and lay down the first layer of bread with Old Blue Eyes himself, Frank Sinatra. 
We have heard in our investigation about Dominic Dunn and Frank Sinatra a few different ways. But let's benchmark here the beginning part of this Dominic Frank story to see how it all comes back around again. This is Dominic Dunn writing in Vanity Fair from 2001 in a piece called Morning in New York. Nick writes, This is the music issue, so I think I'll tell about a Frank Sinatra episode in my life. I have always loved the song called Love and Marriage by Jimmy Van Heusen and Sammy Kahn, which appeared in the 1955 television spectacular, as such shows were called then, of a musical version of Thornton Wilder's Our Town, starring Sinatra, who was then in the early part of his long zenith as the king of Hollywood. I was reminded of the show recently when I was reading about it in a new biography of Nelson Riddle, Sinatra's musical arranger, by Peter J. Levinson, and came upon my name. I was a stage manager and assistant director at NBC in New York in those early days of live television, which were absolutely thrilling. I was actually a great stage manager and performed my duties on a number of classic shows, such as A Mall and the Night Visitors by Giancarlo Minotti, the first opera ever written for television. I stage managed Humphrey Bogart for his only television appearance in Robert Sherwood's The Petrified Forest, and he was magnificent, both as an actor and as a person. He invited me, a lowly stage manager, to my first movie star party, where Sinatra sang, and Judy Garland sang, and Lana Turner, who lived next door, came in for a drink and sat with Spencer Tracy, who was on the wagon that night and ate a whole box of chocolates. I thought that was the way Hollywood was every day. Remember here, this is Dominic Dunn calling his wife Lenny in New York City with those young babies in the middle of the night. We gotta come to Hollywood, Lenny. All of Dominic's dreams are gonna come true. I think he thinks if he can make it here. Dunn continues writing, Then I got the call to stage manage Sinatra in the Our Town Spectacular, which also starred Paul Newman and Eva Marie Saint, both young and gorgeous at the beginning of their stardom. Saint won an Academy Award that year for On the Waterfront, in which she played opposite Marlon Brando, and Paul Newman would go on to become one of the major movie stars of his generation. The director was a wonderfully talented man named Delbert Mann, who was shortly to receive his Academy Award for Marty. Sammy Kahn and Jimmy Van Heusen wrote the score together, Nelson Riddle, who conducted the orchestra, and Gower Champion, who did the choreography, were all people of consequence in their respective professions. Starstruck as I was, the prospect of working with Sinatra for four weeks was such a thrill that I bragged about it in advance. All that changed, however. I had never encountered a star like Sinatra. There was not a single unquiet moment when he was present, 
although he was mostly not present. He despised rehearsals. You never got to speak to him directly. There was always a posse of tough guys around him. I had to give the director's notes to the posse, and they in turn gave them to Sinatra. Live television was the big new thing back then, and because everybody had to hit certain marks in order to be in place for the cameras, rehearsals meant everything. Once the show began, there was no stopping for mistakes. Sinatra didn't bother to show up for the dress rehearsal. He was on a power trip the whole time. He enjoyed having people be afraid of him, and everyone was. The wonderful score included Look to Your Heart and the aforementioned Love and Marriage, which became the first song to win an Emmy. Everyone, cast and crew, knew every tune and every lyric. We all realized that we were part of something big, but we had to go through the dress rehearsal with the stand-in for Sinatra, a man named Bill Mims. Mims was a lovely fellow, but he had the worst singing voice I had ever heard. As he pathetically and apologetically sang Sinatra's songs, people winced. Doom and despair were in the air, and feelings of failure engulfed us. Sinatra's rude affront to the director and the cast was unpardonable, but no one said a word. Then Sinatra and his gang showed up for the broadcast itself. He hit all his marks, he sang his songs beautifully, and the show was a triumph with high ratings. Afterward, when Delbert Mann came out of the control room to congratulate the actors, he did not speak to Sinatra. And that is the end of our man Nick writing on that matter, at least in that piece. Let's go ahead and skip along to the meat of the sandwich, so to speak, and arrive at the Dunn's 1964 Black and White Anniversary Ball. And I do assure you, it all comes back around. Again, there are no coincidences as much as Dominic would like to believe in them. Now, Dominic has said since he was the tender age of four years old, all he wanted to be was rich and famous. He knows he's not like the rest of the kids in his family. He knows he's not like the rest of the kids in general. He has a feeling of always being on the outside looking in, always looking for that thing that is eluding him. What is just out of reach? Hollywood, for Nick, at this time was his chance to make it. And by 1964, Dominic and Lenny have been in Hollywood for half a dozen years. And this event of the black and white ball just might have been the high point at least in Dominic's first act in Hollywood. This party, this gala, is something he convinces himself he needs. Because I don't want you to think that this whole time in his first act in Hollywood until it goes bad is glorious for Dominic or Lenny. Dominic Dunn is kind of a jerk. 
and really sliding in the skids socially before this triumph. I want to take a few paragraphs from Robert Hoffler's excellent book, Money, Murder, and Dominic Dunn, about Dominic Dunn in this time period surrounding the black and white ball. From Robert Hoffler, beginning here with what Freddie Eberstadt, one of Dominic's very longtime friends, says about Dominic here. Nick kind of lost his head in Los Angeles. Lenny stayed level-headed. He got swept away by the grandeur and glamour. It was the only time I was not very close to him. I found him quite difficult. Years later, Dominic repeatedly admitted, I write assholes so well because I used to be an asshole. He did not exaggerate. In the 1960s, he got into a too-public fight with Henry Fonda's third wife, Aftera Franchetti. He laughed too hard at skater Sonia Henney taking a bad fall on the ice when she came out of retirement. At very private parties, he took too many snapshots of Princess Margaret and union lawyer Sidney Korshak, who was never photographed, Dominic noted. In some ways, Dominic Dunn turned himself into something of a joke. He got invited to important parties, but often only after the dinner had been served to the host's small select group of truly important friends. He and Lenny soon became known as the after-dinner Duns. Worst of all, his marriage to Lenny was breaking up, and people knew it. He did what many Hollywood spouses do when they want to plaster over fissures in a marriage. He decided to celebrate their wedding anniversary in grand fashion. It was 1964, and they had been married 10 years. Mart Crowley said of the Dunn marriage, It was strained then. At the time, the future playwright, Mart Crowley, was the secretary of Natalie Wood, one of Lenny Dunn's closest friends. Crowley said, Lenny and Nick just got through that anniversary party before the marriage really did fall apart. And that is the truth. Let's talk about this black and white soiree. Dominic will describe his gala anniversary ball and all the drama around it in July of 1997 in Vanity Fair. From his piece called The Best of Times, Dominic writes, The high point for us was our black and white ball, which we gave to celebrate our 10th wedding anniversary. When Cecil Beaton was doing the sets and costumes for My Fair Lady, he sometimes came to dinner, and the black and white motif for our party was taken from the ascot scene he designed for the picture. The party was months in the planning, like a feature production, no expense was spared. And investigators, this is the truth. The party cost $20,000. Lenny's mother was furious. 
If Lenny's mother thought Dominic Dunn was freely spending her daughter's heiress money, well, mother-in-law may have been right. This $20,000 party does not do much to improve relations with Dominic Dunn and his mother-in-law. For a bit of a conversion, that $20,000 in 1964 is right under $200,000 today, which maybe honestly for everything that happens in today's dollars seems like a bargain, but this party for this couple, they really, really were trying. Dominic is here achieving the highlight of his social success from the upstart Irish kid just 10 years ago being written up in the New York Times for his marriage, him coming to Hollywood, him giving this glamorous 10th anniversary ball is a social coup. Dominic is coming out in high style in Hollywood, and I think in so doing, trying to fill something within himself. Hang on to that for a moment. Let's go back to Dominic Dunn describing this party. The invitations, which requested that ladies wear black or white, were engraved by Smithsons of New Bond Street in London. Tent parties, in which the pool gets covered to create a dance floor, are regular Saturday night events in Beverly Hills. <laughs> we went far, far beyond that. We totally redid our house. Our furniture was put in storage. Our children were placed in a hotel with a nanny. Our house was transformed, both inside and out, into a total fantasy by Jack McCullough, a muralist and stage designer who became a family friend. He painted backdrops and placed them outside the windows, which gave a feeling of being backstage in a theater. Our living room became a winter garden with trellised walls lit theatrically so that people passed in and out of spotlights as they greeted one another. The effect was quite amazing. However foolish and extravaganza it may have been, Lenny's mother was furious. Mine was bewildered. Anyone who was there will verify that it certainly was beautiful. We do have a few more comments from some witnesses from this event. Again, pulling these quotes from Robert Hoffler's text from Mark Crowley talking about this ball. It was gorgeous, he said. Yes, the party was over the top, but not in a glitzy Hollywood way. Alex Dunn, Dominic's son, will recall Jack McCullough turned the house into a stage. He built these beautiful white trellises that we had for years later. The trellises were very French, making the place look like a chateau. We had these cypress trees by the pool in the backyard, and Jack painted these jungle scenes, so you saw animal faces coming at you through the trees. It was a big deal, and I couldn't understand why we weren't allowed to be there. Back to Dominic talking about this party. For the women, it was a night for new ball gowns and elaborate coiffures, and everyone rose to the occasion. There were even a couple of tiaras. Lenny, who was beautiful, was more beautiful that night. About 250 people came, 
Some flew in from other places to be there. The couturier Jimmy Galanos came and watched his dresses whirling by on the dance floor. Vogue sent the photographer Bob Willoughby to cover the party. For some reason, he did not take any pictures of the pre-political Ronald and Nancy Reagan, who were among the guests, but he did of Alfred and Betsy Bloomingdale. There were hydrangeas everywhere, two bands, and a late supper. The music stopped at four. We had sent flowers to all the neighbors so they wouldn't complain to the police about the noise. We mixed ages. We mixed groups. People saw people they hadn't seen for years. Annabella, who was Tyrone Power's first wife, ran to greet David Niven, who turned to greet Angie Dickinson, who turned to greet Tony Curtis. The Lawfords, who had separated, came together. Natalie Wood was the prettiest woman at the party. We stipulated no house guests in order to keep the number of people within fire law limits, but Truman Capote, who was staying with David Selznick and Jennifer Jones, insisted that he bring his, and for Truman you made an exception. Already famous, he was about to peak. In Cold Blood, which the press had been anticipating for several years, would soon be serialized in The New Yorker following the execution by hanging of Perry Smith and Richard Hickok, who had murdered the Clutter family in Holcomb, Kansas. The guests, whom Truman insisted on bringing, were Alvin Dewey and his wife. Dewey was the Kansas Bureau of Investigation agent who had solved the murder case that transfixed Truman for so long. In a tent full of famous people, Dewey became the most besieged. Everyone wanted to talk to him. Truman, who was a great dancer, was never off the floor. He twirled Natalie Wood, dipped Tuesday Weld, cha-cha'd Hope Lang, and even got the reluctant Jennifer Jones to the dance floor. Two years later, Truman gave his famous black-and-white ball at the plaza in New York. He didn't invite us. Before we talk about that slight of Truman Capote's and bring it back around to Frank Sinatra for the last piece of the bread in our investigation sandwich today, I want to go back and unpack a few of those details that Dominic Dunn wrote about and explore just a little bit more here of Robert Hoffler's writing. Again, super fancy party. The invitations were engraved in Bond Street in London. Women wore black or white because of their friend Cecil Beaton. Mark Crowley will say that he was one of the extra men invited. As only 250 guests were allowed, Dominic told a lot of his bachelor friends that they could not bring a date. This was a very exclusive party. Crowley follows up, though, about being an extra man, saying we were always useful to invite the women to dance. I could get a party going. I could dance with everybody. Keep Mark Crowley in your 
investigation loop, he is going to come back around in a number of ways in short order. Now, remember here that Capote was a guest of David Oselznick and Jennifer Jones. Capote has met and befriended Jennifer Jones quite a long time ago. And again, Truman was relentless with getting Alvin Dewey and his wife to the party. Dominic relents, the Deweys are the hit of the party. All of that is fantastic. I do want to unpack these photos, though, because Dominic Dunn is going to make sure to get his party in the press. And the way this happens and the events surrounding it are a little bit interesting. From Robert Hoffler, if a party takes place in Beverly Hills and no one is there to photograph or report it, has the party really taken place? Dominic did not think so. He enlisted his soon-to-be sister-in-law to pull some strings at Vogue, where Joan Didion reviewed movies until a 143-word pan of The Sound of Music got her fired the month before Vogue published its coverage of the black and white ball. The fashion magazine sent photographer Bob Willoughby. Dominic got his artist friend, Don Bacciardi, Christopher Isherwood's partner, to sketch Lenny's gown for an item in Women's Wear Daily. He also had luck finding someone to report on the party even though he would be the one providing all the copy. George Christie told Dominic that such a party was not right for his column in town and country. Christie recalled, I was doing interviews with Alfred Hitchcock, that kind of thing. However, the columnist promised to pass on Dominic's party details to Aline Maley, who wrote as Susie Knickerbocker for the journal American. Christie said it'd give her column international flair rather than just New York society. As promised, Susie ran Dominic's copy, reporting on a guest list featuring an eclectic roundup of movie stars, from Loretta Young to Dennis Hopper, along with top directors Billy Wilder and Vincent Minnelli, L.A. Society ladies Betsy Bloomingdale and Edie Getz, as well as future First Lady and President Nancy and Ronald Reagan. Dominic was thrilled. Susan even repeated verbatim some of the copy he gave her. Quote, there were hydrangeas everywhere, two orchestras, and a late supper. The music stopped at four, unquote. Years later, Dominic repeated those words in his published memoir, The Way We Lived Then. Christie said it was an exciting launch for his social career, who told Dominic to send more, I'll pass them on. Christie was just one of many columnists who began receiving Dominic's morning reports of parties he gave and the parties he attended. Lenny told him, if all else fails, you can always write a column. She knew her husband better than he did. Lenny is the second person who maybe has suggested that Dominic Dunn might have a career in writing. His 
father being one of the first. Let's go ahead and get back to Truman and Frank Sinatra here again. Remember that the Dunn's 10th anniversary black and white party lasted till 4 a.m.? This gala event would become the main inspiration for Truman Capote's famous black and white ball at the Plaza Hotel two and a half years later. The details about Truman's black and white ball was covered all the way back in episode 14 of Done and Done if you want to refresh yourself on those details. And although Dominic and Lenny Dunn helped to galvanize Truman Capote's idea for his star-studded gala, even allowing Truman Capote to bring extra uninvited guests to their party, the Dunns would not be extended an invitation to Truman's black and white party later down the road. In our investigation here, I do think this all comes down to Frank Sinatra and where the biggest star power was, at least for Truman Capote in 1966, and Dominic and Lenny were not it. See, Frank Sinatra and Mia Farrow were it at the time, having married July 16, 1966. Frank Sinatra and Mia Farrow were invited to Truman Capote's ball, and by November of 1966, I don't think you could have had Frank Sinatra and Dominic Dunn in the same room together. Now, Dominic Dunn, being part of the after-dinner Dunns, is already building quite a reputation. But here, I think Frank Sinatra is already sensing and targeting in on some of that Dominic Dunn insecurity, his feelings of being different, his feelings of not fitting in. And Frank Sinatra, for his part, begins to take out those feelings not on Dominic Dunn, but on his poor wife, Lenny. There's a lot of torment that Frank Sinatra delivers to Lenny privately, both at the Daisy and other posh clubs as well. This really does end in disaster one night in September of 1966. Let's roll this story back to Frank Sinatra, the fall of 1966, and the Daisy that is the location of this particular scene and how it goes down. See, Dominic Dunn is there with Lenny and a small group of friends, and by chance at the next table, Frank Sinatra is sitting with his two daughters, Nancy and Tina, and his new wife, Mia Farrow. And Frank, sometimes pretty volatile, he might be looking for a fight in this night. It is Frank will find one. It's not Frank here that does the punching. He elicits <laughs> another fellow into his posse that night. There is a tap on Dominic Dunn's shoulder, and it is the maitre d' of the daisy. This is a really nice fellow. His name is George. Italian guy. Dominic Dunn says we all knew him. We all gave him Christmas presents. He really was a wonderful man. But this night, George is tapping Dominic on the shoulder and says to Dominic, Oh, Mr. Dunn, I'm so sorry about this, but Mr. Sinatra made me do it. So saying, he leans back and clenches his fist and hits Dominic Dunn smack in the face. Dominic Dunn says it wasn't a hit to knock me out. 
but it was embarrassing. As you can imagine, silence falls over the crowd at the daisy. Forks drop. Pool balls stop knocking around. Dominic Dunn will look across at Frank Sinatra, who is staring back at Dominic with a very satisfied smile on his face. Nick and Lenny will make a pretty quick exit from the daisy, and while they're waiting for their car, George the maitre d' runs out. He's crying, he's sobbing, he's afraid, apologizing to Dominic. I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. Mr. Sinatra made me do it. He tells the Dunns that Frank Sinatra tipped him 50 bucks. And Dominic Dunn will say it was the social talk of the town. I was the amusement for Sinatra. My humiliation was his fun. Nick will never forgive Frank Sinatra for his behavior that night, saying it showed the kind of power Sinatra had to make a decent man do an indecent act. And you know, I'm aware totally that his voice is one of the greatest voices of his era, if not the greatest. And to this day, I can't stand the sound of it. No love lost between those two, Dominic and Frank. And quite frankly, Dominic, I get it. So a little speculation on my part here as we connect these daisy dots, so to speak, From the fall of 1966, back to the copycat, Truman Capote black and white ball, held in November of that year, maybe this incident at the Daisy is why the Duns were not invited. Frank and Mia, way more appeal on Truman's fancy party list than Nick and Lenny would be. I want to go back to Robert Hoffler for two more paragraphs here. Maybe to dig into Dominic's psyche and just a little bit of a way through this time. For all the halcyon days that Dominic might write about later that he remembers from this time, it certainly was not all sunshine and roses. From Hoffler, Dominic's unbridled drive was part entitlement, part anxiety. Even though his marriage was falling apart, he deserved to throw himself a $20,000 party, but the sheer extravagance masked deep insecurity. He said of his life in Beverly Hills, I always felt I was there on a pass. I wasn't going to last. I didn't belong there. I always had a feeling I wasn't part of this. I was just watching. Griffin Dunn, Dominic's oldest son, saw the unhappy side of his father's obsession. Griffin says he was at the mercy of these people who he was entertaining. It was almost as if they weren't real unless they liked him and came to his house. Even their presence was not enough. Dominic needed to relive the experience through the voluminous scrapbooks he kept, ordered specifically from Smithsons. Every telegram and every acceptance to his invitation were ironed into a scrapbook. He would use an iron so they would stay in, recalled Griffin. Dominic was creating the life of the person he had invented 
to replace the boy he had been born, and his fabricated life needed to be documented. He needed to believe it was real, that he was not making it up. I want to go ahead and close us out today, continuing back to Dominic Dunn's 1997 Vanity Fair piece, He will conclude in the best of times. Life, of course, never stays carefree. Woes, tribulations, terrible things happen to all of us, and we were no exception. Lenny and I divorced about six years after the ball, but the circumstances of our subsequent lives were such that we never became unmarried. Neither of us ever again lived the way we had lived then. Things that were urgently important at the time became not important at all as life went on. Although Lenny never shared my enthusiasm for talking about old times, years later we would sometimes discuss the way we had lived then, always in utter amazement. In the final years of her terrible illness, she didn't speak much. Conversation was usually one-sided. One day last year, sitting by the side of her bed in a house that she had built in Arizona on land that had once been part of her father's cattle ranch, I said to her, Lenny, I was looking at the scrapbook of her black and white ball the other day in the country. She didn't reply. I persisted. Can you believe we ever gave that black and white ball? We must have been out of our minds. For a while, she didn't answer. She appeared to be thinking about it, but I didn't actually expect a response. Then I saw the beginning of a smile at the corners of her lips. I went on. Do you remember? We emptied the house and had all the furniture put in storage. She started to laugh as she began to remember, and then she said, Don't forget, we put the kids and the nanny in a hotel. We both roared. It was the biggest laugh we had had together since our divorce. But it sure was pretty, I said. And it must have been pretty. Pretty enough for Truman Capote to get all the inspired for his black and white ball. Less than three years later, Truman gives his ball in honor of Catherine Graham the publisher of the Washington Post, who we will be meeting in a coming episode who connects Dominic Dunn into another tremendous coincidence in his rising to his third and most successful act, which is another investigation for a future day. Thank you, friends, so, so much for tuning into this episode of Dunn and Dunn. I am so grateful for all of you listening, for telling your friends about Done and Done, for your kind emails and reviews as well. Holy cats, all of the support and love over at patreon.com slash doneanddone2. Patreon folks, stay tuned. I do have a not done yet surprise coming for you this week so, so soon. Catching up with all the threads of this summer of Lost and Found. So many connections and coincidences, people and places to explore. Thank you again, friends, for joining me on this journey. 
Until we meet again on your next Dunday, you know that I want you to stay curious and keep on investigating. Bye, everybody. Have a tremendous week. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.